Hi everyone, welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. I'm your host, Olivia Grant, a PhD candidate at the University of Essex and Queen Mary University of London. Join me as I speak to researchers in the field of genomics about their current research, their latest papers and what they're up to in the lab. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure that you subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of 2022 for the Genomics Lab. I am so sorry it's taken me so long to put out an episode this year. <laughs> I had like just the holidays off and then like came back. We was organizing group 2022. I know so many of you came, so um, I hope you all enjoyed it. It was such a like successful conference. So yeah, and I'm just like, as much as I enjoyed it, I'm glad that I can just like, you know, not think about it, hopefully for a couple of months. Will we do another one next year? I don't know, maybe, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so I, just, I was so busy with that. And then just PhD life, you know, got in the way. <laughs> but anyways, back today, brand new episode. And oh my gosh, this episode is like, we filmed it back in November, actually. So I'm talking to Dr. Ben Ryan, who some of you may know from like Instagram, TikTok. Um, we'll call him TikTok famous. Um, <laughs> but we had like literally such a... So we start talking about you'll hear what we start talking about. We start talking about epigenetic inheritance. And by the way, we did like not plan to talk about this. We actually planned to talk mainly about one of Ben's papers um, about like epigenetics, but we literally ended up on the most random tangent. And I'm not even gonna lie to you guys. I think we're chatting absolute rubbish. <laughs> like, I don't actually know if what we're saying is even right. Like, so if you're someone who studies epigenetic inheritance, like knows a lot about it and like, this is painful for you to listen to. I don't, I'm sorry. I actually don't know what to say to you other than I'm sorry. And if we're chatting rubbish, please DM me and let's have a chat <laughs> because I'll be interested to know if what I say is absolute rubbish because yeah, I'd just be interested to know. So if listening to me is painful for you today, um, DM me on Twitter or something at the Genomics Lab or on my personal Twitter, Olivia underscore A underscore Grant. And let's have a chat because I really enjoy talking about epigenetic inheritance, as you can tell. And Ben obviously clearly enjoys it as well. Um, so yeah, um, we're just, just bear this in mind. We are just two people who do not study epigenetic inheritance, who randomly ended up doing a whole episode basically about epigenetic inheritance. So if we're chatting rubbish, I do apologize. Um, and anyone who doesn't know a lot about epigenetic inheritance, do not take what we say as Bible because we actually don't know what we're talking about. But nevertheless, we had a very exciting conversation. And I do just think sometimes it's like, you know, like, don't worry too much. I was like, should I put this episode out? You know, have I just spoke a load of rubbish? But I was like, do you know what? It actually doesn't matter. Like, we're just two people discussing some scientific ideas. And we're both, you know, like, we know how to do research and stuff. So if we ended up wanting to pursue any of these things um we may find out that our ideas are rubbish once we started reading the literature so just bear in mind that we don't know right now <laughs> so anyways i hope you enjoy it nevertheless and yes i will be back to episodes now um probably going to be releasing bi-weekly or monthly i'm just going to see how things go i'm in the final year of my phd now so the stress is hitting me um 
but yeah and I'm also changing my episode release days to Fridays I think <laughs> so anyways hope you enjoy this and yeah um let's look forward to many more fun episodes for TGL 2022 so I am really excited to introduce uh, Dr Ben Ryan um to the podcast so I followed Ben for ages actually on I think I found you first on Instagram but you are like doing amazing on TikTok now so I think most of the people uh well probably I think half the audience from from my podcast comes from Instagram so I'm assuming that roughly half my audience are going to know who you are so for the other half who don't could you please introduce yourself? I have given a brief introduction, but I always find it nicer coming from the guests themselves. So could you introduce yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do, and a little bit about your about your background? Of course, yeah, thank you for having me. So my name is Ben Ryan. I'm from Buffalo, New York, uh, East Coast. Now I'm in Stanford University as a postdoc, West Coast in the United States. And uh, in my research, I'm studying like social behaviors and social development and sort of how experiences, social experiences in early life might shape brain development. But in my past research, my PhD, I've been studying um, autism spectrum disorder, various genetic predispositions to autism, and specifically how epigenetics may play a role in the, uh, the treatment of autism symptoms. So also, as Olivia mentioned, I, um, I got involved with TikTok and Instagram kind of just happenstance just sort of happened, but I'm really glad I did. Now I do a lot of, you know, educational short TikTok format, you know, 60 to 90 second videos, just sort of summarizing a paper or a topic or something new. Um, so yeah, and that's, that's how I met Olivia. That's how I got here. So yeah, thanks again for having me. No worries. Amazing. Um, so I actually didn't know that you uh, focus a lot on epigenetics in your PhD. So the reason I actually reached out to Ben in the first place is quite funny so I've been obsessed I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before but in like the last two months I have been obsessed with um reading about epigenetic inheritance so I really wanted to do an episode on epigenetic or all about epigenetic inheritance of trauma so I wanted to do an episode about it and I thought it'd be really cool to have Ben on to talk about it from sort of a neuroscience aspect that kind of never ended up happening just because I couldn't find uh, another guest but um, you kind of mentioned this epigenetics paper, sent it to me. Um, so that's how we've kind of ended up here. Um, so my first question is how you kind of mentioned that you like fell into TikTok, Instagram, but why did you actually, which one did you start first, Instagram or TikTok? And why did you start it? Yeah, I started TikTok first um, and I didn't start it on purpose, funny enough. I So my fiance had TikTok and was like, look, it's so funny. Look at these funny videos trying to get me to use it. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll download it just to watch videos. And my username was like, you know, user five, six, nine, whatever. It was just like a long string of numbers. I didn't have a profile picture. I was one of those anonymous people. And I went to Walmart in uh, March of 2020, early pandemic. And when everyone was first forced to wear masks and I saw everybody wearing their, their surgical masks inside out, upside down, didn't have it expanded, didn't have the bar clasped to the nose. And I just thought, man, people have no idea how to wear these things. And since I've been doing surgeries in the lab, I knew how to wear them. Uh, so I just thought, you know, I'm gonna make a video, post it on my, my personal Facebook, my personal Instagram and Twitter, just for my friends and family to know, you know, this is how you wear one. And so I made it on TikTok because I thought, what software should I use for this video? Oh, I guess this new app I downloaded for watching videos works. And so I did it there and, the, and I was like, 
to my fiance, like, how do I save a video? She's like, oh, you have to post it to save it. Like, okay, that's weird. So I posted it, forgot about it, put it on Facebook and all that. And then a couple of days later, I, I went back on TikTok to check, you know, watch the videos. And I had like 10,000 followers. And my video had like, you know, a couple hundred thousand views. <laughs> and people are like, you're so nice. Like the way you're explaining this is just so kind and gentle. And I was like, what? Okay. Like, <laughs> I, you know, it was just kind of strange, but I thought, should I do something with this? And I, and I really genuinely debated for you know, a couple of days before I thought, all right, fine, I'll try it. And I, and I just started asking people, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist, ask me your questions. I'll be happy to answer them. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the next year or so, I really sort of figured out what my approach would be and what my purpose was and what the content of my channel would consist of. And it's just sort of ended up, you know, finding I've, I've sort of I don't know, fallen into this niche of where I've, I've explained research papers and all this. And then of course, you know, I, I realized, well, I, if TikTok goes down or something, there was some time where, you know, TikTok was maybe going to be banned. And I thought I should probably have another platform. So then I created Instagram to share, you know, my videos there and other things and stuff inside the lab once in a while. So that's how it all happened. Amazing. That's such a funny story. Um, I love how like a lot of people I speak to kind of just like accidentally fell into it. Like it was kind of the same for me. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, we were saying earlier before I started recording, like Ben's, Ben's videos are literally like, they're awesome. They're amazing. So I, I mean, I'll put all the links to everything below, but you guys should go check them out. Um, I don't know how you get these papers into 60 seconds. So I've done a couple of similar videos. I used to do like uh, si- similar videos on um, YouTube. And then I kind of went onto Instagram and then my main focus was obviously the podcast. But I've done a couple of them and I cannot for the life of me squeeze it into 60 seconds. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> it's it's well, thank you, by the way. It's very tough. Um, you know, I have to parse out what's important, what's not important. And inevitably, I always leave out something important. And we were just talking about this before I started, we started recording um, about how, you know, when I make a video about a specific paper or a topic, the biggest fear is that an expert in that topic or the first author of the paper is going to see the video and say, yeah. you totally, totally got it wrong. You know, you missed this critical piece. It's misrepresented. You need to take this down. And, you know, my goal is to spread accurate information. There's so much bogus on social media. There's a lot of people sharing all tor- sorts of inaccurate, you know, simplified. There are people who don't really have the educational background to take these complex findings and simplify them but they're still trying to simplify them and then they're kind of there's like this game of telephone where they're misrepresenting it and my goal is to be like the opposite of that where i I am simplifying it so that people understand but i'm actually hoping to get it right so my biggest fear is that i get it wrong and that someone who knows more than i do will correct me and you know so um and whatever we were just actually talking so this actually just happened where i posted this video about this this whole TikTok tick phenomenon where uh there's an increase in the prevalence of, of ticks, you know, like Tourette's related ticks. And some scientists are blaming it on this recent sort of fad on TikTok where people are posting, look at my unusual ticks. You know, a lot of people who do have Tourette's are sharing, you know, kind of videos that are intended to be funny of them expressing their ticks in, you know, maybe inappropriate situations, um, but making it relatable. And some scientists are saying maybe this is driving it like sort of a subconscious expression of ticks and people who do not have Tourette's. So I made a video on this and I got a comment from another neuroscientist and she said, Hey, you know, this is very controversial. Um, let's talk. And so I messaged her and we ended up, she showed me, you know, a, 
in science, there's always two sides to a story. There's always someone who disagrees with a finding and, and disagrees with the conclusion. And so she showed me another scientist who said that conclusion of it being driven by uh, TikTok is likely inaccurate. And here's why. And so, and, and not only is it inaccurate, but it may be oppressive to people with ticks, it may be oppressive to women. And um, so I basically made another video trying to explain it. And it's just funny, you know, you don't, you don't, I, I don't really get caught in the act like this. Like usually my videos are accurate. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not like I was trying to spread something wrong. I just sort of missed the nuance of this paper, um, but it happens. And, you know, I guess I, I, I hope to, to set potentially a good example of like when you're wrong, it's okay to be wrong and admit that you're wrong yeah. and show like, because we talked about it, her and I, and, and we decided instead of deleting the video and just leaving the 200,000 people or saw who had seen it, um, those 200,000 people without an explanation, I'd rather create a linked video where it's like, okay, I got this wrong. Let me explain the actual, you know, basis for this. So, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a risky business, I guess, being on, on TikTok yeah. and doing this type of stuff, but. Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's so scary. Just like, like I was saying literally at the start, like I'm so interested in epigenetic inheritance of trauma. And when I see videos about it on TikTok, like it, it literally annoys me. Like I, I literally get annoyed because it's like, like you said, it is like, there's so much misinformation spread around this particular topic and it's so misunderstood. And it's like, I actually know that I have all the knowledge to correct the information. It's just like going about it in the right way is so difficult as well. Um, and I'm just, it's such a controversial topic, even within, you know, like people who study epigenetics and pe even people who study epigenetic inheritance specifically. So it's like, it is scary to kind of talk so openly about these, these topics, you know? And having other scientists come to you and be like, hey, this is wrong. That is definitely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I get worried about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and for some context for maybe some non-science, non-scientist listeners, I mean, in science, I can publish a peer-reviewed paper where I say, here's the finding and here's my conclusion. Here's my, you know, uh, understanding of that and explanation for that. And other scientists, even though it's peer-reviewed and, you know, other scientists said, this is okay, publish it. Other scientists who did not review it will see the paper and say, I disagree with this conclusion. I think that you're wrong and whatever. And this is sort of scientific discourse. You know, there's agreements within science, even within peer-reviewed studies. So when I publish a non-peer-reviewed TikTok video, mm -hmm. uh, I suddenly subject myself to peer review. And, and there yeah. are scientists and, you know, I can tell when someone's credentials are valid and, you know, and they are a reputable expert in this field. And they say, you know, this is inaccurate. Like in this case, I did recognize that but you also have to realize that I get a lot of I get a lot of peer review from non-scientists and people saying I disagree you know you didn't talk about the gut microbiome it affects the brain and you know these people who have read an article um and think that they understand more about the brain than someone who has been studying it for years you know and it's just funny you just sort of put yourself out there and and you get a whole spectrum of of responses uh mm -hmm. but you know from I'll share this. I, I was recently talking with a, a very, very prominent uh, neuroscience psychomer, and his advice was post and ghost. You know, it's best to sort of put something out there and then kind of disappear and let like, you know, it, it, it's rather than engaging. Um, but in this case, I felt that it was right to engage because I thought they, this commenter, the scientist had a valid point. Mm -hmm. So whatever, this is a whole interesting topic, though, a very strange and unique thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I wish I could be the type of person to post some ghosts. 
Um, but I, yeah, I mean, probably for you, I mean, you have how many followers on TikTok now? 500,000? Uh, closer to 600,000, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I can imagine that those comments and everything is probably actually unmanageable to the point where you could post and ghost. <laughs> Yeah, I right. And it's, you know, in, on TikTok, it happens in waves. On, on Instagram, you post something, you get uh, Very similar. You know, some, yeah, some sort of activity for like a, a 24 hour period. And then it kind of like fades off on TikTok. Like you can, you know, a video can be going viral for weeks. And it's like, I'm not going to check 7000 comments on a video, especially when 6000 of them are, you know, just random anecdotes or things that like, I'm not really interested in, in hearing. <laughs> about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. so. So um, I think the first video from you that I kind of kind of found was the one where you're talking about epigenetics. So, I mean, this kind of links quite nicely because um, can you tell the story behind this epigenetics video? Because, I mean, you kind of had someone say that you didn't really understand epigenetics, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think back. That was a few months ago. It's, so yeah. someone commented and I think I made a video explaining epigenetics and then someone commented and said, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you did, then you would know that connections between brain cells can be strengthened with use called epigenetics or something like that. Yeah. And it was just like, they incorrectly defined epigenetics for me. <laughs> and it was, and it was just really, <laughs> you know, this is a good example of the kind of peer review I get, you know? Um, and, but yeah, I made a video about epigenetics and I'm not sure if you want me to talk about this or not but basically where I was explaining like what epigenetics is and I actually used like furniture on my patio which I'm currently right. sitting yeah on. so this is the video yeah this is the video I was talking about but that was going to be sort of my first kind of leading is to say can you I can imagine there'll probably be some people listening to this episode who don't know what epigenetics is so can you kind of give us a, a rerun of that um sort of furniture epigenetics uh link that you made yeah yeah so okay a lot of what happened, and I'll, I'll do this in the context of neuroscience of the brain. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what happens in your brain is experience dependent. So, you know, once you're an adult, your brain's no longer developing. Um, the activity of your brain cells is going to be dependent upon the things that occur to you. Like, for example, if you open your eyes and you see, you know, a baseball flying at your face, it's going to activate your visual cortex, right? Like this is the part of the brain that interprets visual information. So and this is just an example of this, but so your brain cells, all of your brain cells have every bit of your DNA. Uh, every single brain cell has all of your DNA. So it's not like your DNA is spread across your whole brain. They all have 100% of it. And those codes, those blueprints, you know, you could think of uh, your genes are essentially blueprints for physical proteins. So you can think of your genes as like a sheet of paper, like a, like a blueprint for a building. And you can think of your proteins as like the building itself, like a physical structure that, that does something that has some purpose, some function in the cell. And as your cell needs those proteins, which may do different things, they might be enzymes, they might be whatever, transcription factors, doesn't matter, they all do different things. As your cell needs them, it will take that blueprint and it will essentially, cutting out some steps, uh, build it, build that protein from the blueprint. But that process is always dependent upon the activity and the, and the properties of the cell and what the cell is experiencing and what you're experiencing. So what the example I used was like, okay, let's say, think about your, the room you're in as a cell. And let's say, um, you know, your cell has a blueprint for a chair and that's a gene. That is an analogy for a gene. 
and your, your cell is having a bunch of friends over and suddenly your cell looks around and says, wait a minute, we only have one chair in here. We need a bunch more chairs. So your cell says, all right, we're gonna make a couple copies of this. So it takes the blueprint, it makes a, a disposable copy of it. And then that disposable copy gets turned into a chair and then the disposable copy gets thrown in the garbage. Now you have a chair, but the original blueprint is still in the nucleus of the cell, just hanging out there intact, was not affected by this process at all. But through this process, this is called transcription, well, translation and transcription. Um, but this process that I'm long-windedly describing is epigenetics in a sense. Like your, your cell said, okay, some change happened. We have friends coming over. We need a chair. Um, and so it altered the cell's usage of the DNA, the cell, the blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, and so that essentially is epigenetics in that you can go out and you can experience something and it can change the firing patterns of your cells and induce a bunch of activity in your cells. And as a result, your cells will change the transcripts, the genes that they're using because the cells properties and functions and responsibilities have changed. So that in a sense is epigenetics. I hope that all made sense. Mm -hmm. I probably would have, could have made that more concise if I had watched that video I made <laughs> more recently. <laughs> No, it makes perfect sense. Um, another example I always used to like, I always like to give, um, because like I said, I can imagine there's people who haven't or don't really know much about epigenetics. So the simplest example I always like to give is identical twins. And I like to give it purely because I'm an identical twin myself. So it's always my kind of go-to. Um, but yeah, so identical twins obviously have the um, exact same DNA. Um, so when you think about it, we actually should be like, like absolute clones of each other because we have the same DNA right so when me and my twin sister were born we looked exactly the same but now we don't and that's because of epigenetics as well so it's like Ben said it's like the study of how your experiences uh your environment lifestyle factors all basically influence the way that your genes are expressed so I think you gave a great explanation I love your chair analogy um I think it's brilliant <laughs> so um what was kind of your background uh before you started your PhD then and then can you tell us a little bit about your PhD research? So did you, like, what was your undergraduate in? How did you get into epigenetics and neuroscience? Because I feel like you're studying it or you studied it from a really, really cool link. So a lot of people I know studying epigenetics in brain, for example, are interested in like Alzheimer's or neurodegenerative diseases and things like that. So I find it interesting kind of the way that you were looking at it. Yeah. So, okay. My, I'll start chronologically. Am I, undergraduate experience was in psychology. Um, I was a psychology major. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew that I was really interested in behavior and specifically social behavior. I thought it was, I, I, you know, I always found that I was very outgoing, but there were other students in my high school, for example, who weren't quite as outgoing. And, you know, people, groups kind of segregated naturally into the really outgoing people hung out and then the really quiet people hung out with each other or maybe didn't hang out with each other or didn't hang out with anyone. And I always was just curious, like, we're all so similar. We all have the same brains. We all have, you know, the same genetics essentially, but there's this natural variability in how outgoing or how social people are. And I just thought that was really, really neat. Um, and I became curious about like what natural variance in brain function drives these differences in sociability. Uh, and actually at the time I was just interested in the psychology of it, the behavior, but then I realized I was interested in neuroscience. So then when I went to my PhD in neuroscience, um, I found this lab that was studying autism and 
I actually didn't join the lab because of the autism research, but I joined the lab for other reasons. And then later realized like, wait a minute, this is exactly what I want to study. This is so cool. I'm really interested in, in social functions. So what the lab was studying was various genetic risk factors for autism. So about 60%, um, the estimates really vary somewhere between 15 and 60%. I see that's a gigantic range of all autism cases are estimated to be um, genetic. And, you know, it's not like you have a single gene where if you have a mutation in this gene, okay, you're very likely to have autism. Rather, there are like up to a thousand genes where if you have a mutation in that gene, it can produce what we would diagnose as autism or what clinicians would diagnose as autism. Mm -hmm. And that is just so interesting to me in itself. You know, like, how is it possible? Like these thousands of genes that all do different processes in the cell can all lead to the same behavioral manifestation. Um, but so we were studying essentially how some of the more prominent genetic risk factors affect the brain in mice. Um, mm -hmm. And specifically how they how those mutations affect the way that cells communicate with one another through synaptic transmission, which is a key critical function of the brain. It's very important. Um, without synaptic transmi transmission, the brain doesn't do anything. So, mm -hmm. and we focused on a few um, prominent genetic risk factors, one being a gene called Shank3. My research was studying a gene locus. So instead of a single gene mutation, this was a either what we call a copy number variation. So a variation in the number of copies of an entire section of a chromosome. So you kind of, if you think of like, like um, Down syndrome, trisomy 21, you have an entire extra chromosome or an extra copy of uh, chromosome 21. In this case, we had an extra copy of a section of chromosome 16. So it's called 16P11.2 duplication. You don't have to memorize that. But um, <laughs> so that's what I was studying. And the way that epigenetics ties into all this is that we can found I ask, that- Can I ask you yeah, a question before you carry please. on? Um, so, you know, you mentioned that there's thousands of, of genes where you could, if you have a mutation, it uh, can make you more susceptible. Does it, would it make you more susceptible to autism or mean that you get it? Um, so, yeah, what you're, this is a question of penetrance of like what ratio of people with the genetic mutation yeah. uh, present with autism. And it's, it varies by the gene. So, okay. you're, so you're, some uh, genes might, are guaranteed. Sorry, my have. next question might be helpful in this. Um, is it sort of like, uh, is it like an additive effect? So for example, if you have like uh, genes in one uh, mutation, one of the genes, you might be less likely to get it. Whereas if you've got a mutation in 10 of the genes, then you're more likely to get it. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if that, so I think that's very rare. Like, it, you know, it's, it's pretty rare to have a gene mutation as it is. It's very rare to have multiple gene mutations. It's especially rare to have multiple gene mutations in multiple genes that are all driving factors for the same yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, developmental disorder. So mm -hmm. I would say yes, you know, just theoretically, um, it makes sense. Uh, but an, another good example of this is like, so you have two copies of every gene, right? You have two uh, chromosomes, You've, you know, chromosome one, for example, there's two of them. Um, and if, if you, so you can have a heterozygous or you can have a homozygous mutation where uh, if you have one copy of that gene with a mutation, you still have another copy that's intact and that can override the, you know, maybe non-functional other copy. But if you have both copies mutated, then... Uh, you're more at risk for developing um, autism, for example. And the reason for that is, is actually simple is that like your cells are using both of those copies and 
both of those copies code for the same protein and that protein does a function in the cell. So if you, if you have 50% of that protein not working uh, with a single, one of the chromosomes is mutated, then 50% of the genes working, 50% of that process is intact. If both are, are faulty, both are you know, mutated somehow, then hundred percent of that protein is not doing what it's supposed to. So it's just affecting cellular processes at a more intense level. Um, so the, and I hope that makes sense. Feel free to ask these genetic yeah. questions. I think it's really important. Um, so the way that epigenetics ties into this is that our lab before my PhD lab, before I got there had found that a few, what we would call epigenetic enzymes um, were essentially disrupted or, or altered in these autism mouse models. And so what that really means is like, when you experience something, well, let me go back to Olivia's example of the identical twin. So you have the same exact genetic code, you have the same DNA, but your experiences will change the way that your cells use those, um, those genes, right? And the way that, what we really call is, this is gene expression. So the process of the gene turning into the protein, that's gene expression. Mm -hmm. And if, and so your, you and your sister may look very different. You might act very differently because your experiences that you've had have driven different patterns of gene expression, but what determines yeah. what genes are expressed, right? How does the, how does the cell yeah. take in an experience or activity and turn that into certain genes being expressed? So there are these epigenetic enzymes um, yeah. that modify certain process or certain um, like physical aspects of um, DNA or uh, so DNA, again, this is for everyone, assuming that nobody knows anything about this. If you do, I'm sorry for being monotonous, but your DNA in your cells is wrapped around uh, these protein balls called histones. And so, and, and basically your DNA, the reason this for this is because you need to pack your, like I said, every single cell has hundred percent of your DNA. You need to pack all that DNA into a tiny little cell. So it's packed into these tight, um, you know, coils, uh, like balls really like these, whatever it's easier for, I'm like showing things with my hands to Olivia. <laughs> it makes, it's hard to explain verbally, yeah. but, um, so yeah, they need to be wrapped around those, those histones. And then when they, when the gene needs to be expressed, when it needs to be used, uh, the, how tightly it is wrapped around those proteins can be changed. And mm -hmm. so those histones, those protein balls that the DNA is wrapped around can be modified. You can put like little acetylation groups, little methylation groups, whatever, all these different modifications that change the way the DNA is wrapped. And so when it's less tightly wrapped, it becomes more available to express. And there are enzymes that do these processes. So like histone, remember the protein is called histone, acetylation enzymes or histone deacetylation enzymes. And when they do those things, it changes the expression of a whole bunch of genes um, all at once. And so, and a lot of the time those histone deacetylases um, we're going to focus on histone deacetylases. So let me just talk about this for a second. When a histone yeah. is acetylated, it makes the genes that are wrapped around that histone more accessible. So histone acetylation induces gene expression. So mm -hmm. um, we found that in, a, in several of these- I got something there. Um, yes. So yeah, just as you were talking about um, how sort of like DNA is packed into your cells, so I don't know, I, we were literally just talking, talking about like being careful not to say stupid things that is misinformation, but um, is it, 
Oh, so, you know, when people talk about like, oh, if you like unraveled all the DNA in your cells, like it would stretch. How far did they say it would stretch? Like what? I swear I read something that's like to the moon and back. Now I don't know. Yeah. How <laughs> that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm really, I don't know. I actually don't know. And I'm very yeah, I don't know what it was. to say it. I can't remember far. how long it is. Uh, but anyway, I've definitely seen something that says like it stretched to the moon and back. I don't know if that's true or not. So don't quote us on that. But anyway, so Ben's basically talking about, you know, like your DNA is super, super long. If you've got all the DNA in your cells, unraveled it all, it would be super, super long. So it all has to pack into your cells somehow. And Ben was just talking about obviously how the DNA is wrapped around these proteins called histones. And basically, if you think about it, even though your DNA is wrapped around these, um, uh, these histones, you still need um, things like transcription factors to actually come along and come into contact with the DNA in order to transcribe the DNA in order to make proteins. So basically what Ben is saying is that these enzymes called uh, HDACs, we're talking about HDACs, uh, histone, histone deacetylases, um, they need basically to access the, the DNA, uh, transcription factors need to access the DNA and other things to uh, transcribe the DNA. So basically um, these epigenetic tags basically attach themselves onto these histones or onto the DNA and they basically change how tightly the DNA is associated with these histone proteins. So if it's something that uh, an epigenetic tag which um, loosens that sort of connection between the two, then it means that the transcription factor is more likely to be able to access the DNA and therefore transcribe the protein and therefore you have higher gene expression. Sorry, I just wanted to add that, that part. No, I appreciate the, the walkthrough. Yeah, so that exactly everything that was just spoken is exactly right, except for potentially the going to the moon and back. <laughs> yeah, that's potentially we, wrong, so don't quote us on that. <laughs> we don't know, we don't know about that. Um, I, I think it's impossible, right? Like how, how would that even I'm gonna have to look it up now. I'm gonna have to look it up and see how long it yeah, is, I'll, I don't know. I mean, well, if you think about it, like there's this, you know, there's videos of, like you can look at a, a chromosome under a microscope and like barely, barely see it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like how there, it just doesn't make it. And that's the chromosome. I don't know, whatever. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me. So, um, <laughs> okay. So, so what we found is that certain histone deacetylases, I'm going to call them HDX. And so these are deacetylating. They're removing the acetyl groups, meaning that they are making genes less accessible for transcription. So these are basically repressing yeah. um, gene expression. We found that they were increased. They were expressed. So, and this is funny because these are also genes that are expressed. These proteins, HDX, <clears throat> they're also subject to changes in expression. We found that they were expressed at higher levels in these mm -hmm. autism mouse models. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing because in, for example, the Shank 3, they have a mutation in the Shank 3 gene. It's a yep. single gene mutation. But if we run RNA sequencing to, to sequence and determine the expression of every single gene, we find that like two or 300 genes are expressed at statistically significantly different levels. So they're either higher or lower, even though there's just a single gene that's changed, it leads to all these downstream changes in genes. And a big question is like, how the heck is that happening? You know, that's such a massive downstream effect. And one potential explanation is through these epigenetic um, mm -hmm. HDAC, you know, enzymes. Mm -hmm. And so the big thing that happened was before I get, got to the lab, they found that, you know, these HDACs were overexpressed in these autism mouse models. And they found that if they gave these um, 
if they gave these mice in an, a drug, basically an injection that was an HDAC inhibitor, mm-hmm. it would make the mice significantly more social. And it would also mm-hmm. restore several you know, neurophysiological processes which had been altered at baseline in these mice. And that was, you know, that was published in Nature Neuroscience. It was a really big deal. And then my entire lab kind of like jumped into that and like started really like my PI, my former PI, like really started going hard on that. Um, and then I came along and my project was totally unrelated, actually. Uh, and so I was I remember I was talking about the 16P11.2, the chromosome 16, the section that's duplicated. So that's associated in human beings that 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 genetic change is associated with autism and other things like intellectual disability and epilepsy. Um but we don't know anything about it. It affects like something like a million people worldwide, but we don't know anything about how it works. So I was sort of exploring the mechanisms of that in a mouse model. So these mice had the same mutation and just sort of characterizing how their brain was working. And I, I through my first major study, my, which was my pretty much my whole PhD thesis, I figured out that in this one brain area, which is important for social functions, it's called the prefrontal cortex, uh, there was a disruption in a type of cell-to-cell signaling, which is called GABA signaling. And so when GABA is released between cells, it is inhibitory. So it turns down the cell activity. So GABA in general is just sort of there to like keep, you know, it, it does a role, it, it plays a major role in like information processing and stuff, but in physiologically, it just turns down the activity. So mm-hmm. of brain cells. And so in these mice, there was less GABA, which meant that there was more activity. So this brain area was hyperactive. And I figured that there was this one, molecule, which was called NPAS4, and this is all published. Um, it was a critical protein, it's a transcription factor, and it drives the formation of GABA synapses. And mm-hmm. this, this protein was downregulated. So a loss of this protein was potentially leading to a loss of GABA synapses, which was producing increased excitability in these cells, which is actually a bad thing potentially leading to the social and cognitive deficits, which we saw in these mice and various behavioral tests. So what I did was I used a viral strategy to increase the expression of this NPAS4 molecule transcription factor. And basically I restored the GABA synapses and that was sufficient to make the mice more social, same thing. So, but this had nothing to do with epigenetics at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I wanted to figure out, okay, so this NPAS4 is a critical molecule in this process but like why is it even disrupted in the first place like what's really going on here and Can i found I again? Yeah, sorry please um i always find it really difficult how you link um like genetic or epigenetic changes to behavior because for example we know like or correct me if i'm wrong because obviously you're going to know more about this than me but like let's say for example like a, a, a change in expression of one gene can't change behavior no or can um, it- because I feel like I've always heard like, just like one individual gene can't determine behavior. Is that true or? It depends on what gene and it depends okay. on where, it, you know, where its expression is changed or if mutation, you know, it, it's all about um, the relevant neural circuitry. So this is a, you know, this is a very simplistic way to think about it is that your everything you do, your behaviors are determined by, are regulated by various parts of your brain. You know, different parts regulate different behaviors. And if you have any change in the function of a certain brain area, which is responsible for a certain behavior, 
you that is that change in brain function is liable to change that behavior. So if broadly speaking, if you have a certain brain area that this the activity of that area is increased or mm -hmm. decreased suddenly, that will change the way that brain area is, you know, doing its own little thing and also the way it's interacting with other brain areas uh, that might be also involved in different functions. And that can lead to a whole bunch of behavioral changes. So it really comes down to is a single gene mutation sufficient to change brain function? function and yeah. in some cases it's not, in some cases it, it is, you know, if it's a gene, if it's a gene that encodes a protein, that's like critical for, uh, you know, synaptic transmission, if it's GABA, you know, or the trans the vesicle that transports GABA between cells, then that's definitely going to affect behavior in some way, you know, if versus if it's, you know, some transcription factor that does some job, but there's, but it's a really important job. So there's also like, there's a lot of redundancy. There's also like 25 other transcription factors that do the same exact job. And, yeah. you, you know, you delete one of them, no problem, because there's 25 others that'll do the same thing and compensate for that problem. So, um, yeah, I mean, we definitely, I guess a simple answer to this also, sorry, is that if we mutate a single gene in mice, we often see behavioral changes. But then is that, is that because of the genetic change or is that because of the epigenetic changes because of the genetic change? Um, like the downstream consequences of the genetic change, which are in fact epigenetic changes or yeah, I mean, a direct consequence of like protein expression from the genetic change. Does that make sense? Yeah, and yeah, again, it really depends on the gene. It depends on the, what, what the gene is doing, what it's supposed to yeah. be doing. And it also depends on the, the class of genes or, you know, the, the group of genes that are altered as a consequence, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, it's some combination of the, the, the main culprit gene and then the other ones that are involved. Um, yeah. Epigenetics may only play a factor if the, the culprit gene or the other ones are related to epigenetic processes, like in this case, yeah, yeah. Like what I'm describing. Uh, so yeah, it's all very complicated, which is maybe not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> so in the example that you use, for example, um, how did they know, like this paper that was published in uh, Nature Communications, did you say? Nature Neuroscience. Uh, um, nature Neuroscience, that's it. So how did they know that this one sort of gene actually changed, actually had an effect? Like it was just this one, how did they know? That really stupid question. <laughs> um, so you mean, how do they know that the mutation in chain three, the gene of interest, was actually causing the increase in HDAC yes, exposure? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So versus some intermediate protein, you mean? Um, they didn't, I mean, go on to talk well, about, and I'm just interrupting prematurely. No, no, no. You're, I mean, it's a good, this is a good scientific question. You know, you're always trying to prove necessity and sufficiency and they, I don't think they did any experiment to prove that like mm -hmm. it is an immediate result of I don't think they ever actually figured out why exactly HX were overexpressed they just found that they were you know were, it was just yeah. a, a correlational thing in these in mice with this genetic mutation it was much more likely that this gene would be you know these HX would be overexpressed than in mice without the gene mutation mm -hmm. um and that's, and you know, that whole really trying to establish that link of like why, you know, is like next to impossible. And most papers yeah, don't exactly, do yeah. that. 
Yeah. Unless they get really lucky and figure it out, you know. <laughs> um, so, and and this kind of is also explained in my story here. So, um, okay, so let me just summarize. So there's a problem with GABA, and that means that there's a problem with excite, excitability in, these, in this brain area. And the one step back from that, causing that problem, is a problem with this protein called NPAS4, which builds GABA synapses. Mm-hmm. And that's where I published the story where this, you know, I published that link. There's this G mutation. It leads to a change in this MPAS4 protein, which leads to a change in excitability. And if you change, if you restore the MPAS4 protein, it restores the GABA and then it fixes the, you know, behavioral changes that we saw. But the big question that remained was what was the reason for the MPAS4 protein being disrupted in the first place, you know? And um, I, you know, I started reading the literature and I found a couple of papers and I pieced some things together. And it turns out that NPAS4, which is an activity dependent protein, is tightly regulated by a protein called HDAC5. <laughs> and this is an HDAC, it's a histone deacetylase. And the general way that this works is when the cell becomes activated, HDAC5 becomes activated. You know, like mm-hmm. just like I was saying with epigenetic processes, the cell response to activity and changes the genes it's expressing. So that's exactly what's happening here. And HDAC5 drives the activity of NPAS4, which drives the formation of new GABA synapses. And so mm-hmm. the net yeah. summary of this is the cell becomes activated, the cell forms more GABA synapses, and GABA synapses turn down the cell's activity. So this is actually like a feedback loop of the cells trying to prevent itself from becoming hyperactive. So um, in order to counteract the activation of the cell, it's building more opportunities for it to become, you know, coming down to a calmful, restful, uh, homeostatic activity pattern. So, but this process was disrupted in these mice. And so this recent study, which is, it's unpublished, it's in review right now. Um, I believe it's close to being accepted. But I found that using an HDAC5 inhibitor, mm-hmm we were able to replicate the same effect where targeting HDAC5, turning down its activity, was able to build more GABA synapses and increase the level. It increased basically these mice interest and interact with another mouse. So um, it's a, you know, just another link and, and it just sort of happened to be that uh, it was very similar to the mechanism that the previous study had found. So there's this kind of open question of like, epigenetic enzymes for the, do they have any therapeutic utility for autism? Um, yeah, and yeah, my, yeah, that's what I was about to ask, yeah. Yeah, and um, and I don't know. I mean, basically, <laughs> when it comes to autism and these preclinical, we call preclinical studies in mice, um, 100% fail rate to translate to humans. 100%. We have, there have been, you know, I'm sure I, if I did a, yeah, if I did a Google search or a PubMed search or whatever and looked for, I could probably find, I don't know, maybe 30 to 50 papers in the last year or two where they've shown that this manipulation in mice in a mouse model of autism is able to make the mice more social in yeah. the last year or two, mm-hmm. maybe even more, who knows. But, the, you know, the, how many, how many available treatments do we have for the, for the treatment of social symptoms in autism? Zero, zero, absolutely zero, because none of these treatments seem to scale to the human level, which is very, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's also kind of unsurprising because like, think about the social structure 
of a com yeah. like the conversation we're having right now versus a mouse sniffing another mouse's butt. You know, that's essentially yeah. what we're talking about here. Um, and the, the complexity of the neural circuitry that underlies you know, all the stuff happening in both of our brains right now, just trying to regulate this, the dynamic of this conversation, knowing that it's being recorded yeah. and trying to think about the wording and everything. It's just so complex. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think, um, no, I think that's a really interesting point. And this, this is exactly why I kind of was going to drag you in for the whole <clears throat> epigenetic inheritance of trauma thing. So a lot of the studies that have looked at this have done it in mice. And I, when you're looking at neuroscience, especially when you're looking at things like behavior and social activities, I can't comprehend in my head how you can use mice models to explain humans. Like that doesn't add up in my head. So I too, I'm not too surprised that it doesn't translate well from mice into humans. Yeah, I think, you know, mice are a good, a, a great system for studying, um, you know, neurobio, well, yeah, in my case, neurobiological processes and, and identifying changes. Uh, and they have been used as an effective system to identify potential treatment strategies in the past that have translated to humans. Um, but there's limits, you know, with, we're talking about certain behaviors. Um, and I don't know, you, you got to think about like, what are you really studying a lot of the time? And sometimes yeah, advice yeah. That, that doesn't really, mm -hmm. you're not supposed to what we call anthropomorphize, meaning you're not supposed to think about your mice in the context of humans. You're supposed to think about mice and the behaviors you're testing in the context of that they're mice, you know, and they're not humans. Um, so yeah, this is a sort of a, an issue there, an underlying issue. Um, but then it's like, what's what's better, non-human primates? Maybe, maybe rats, they're a little bit bigger, they're a little bit closer to humans, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a difficult, difficult decision. I'd probably say primates for something like this. I mean, my, you know, like mice models are great for a lot of epigenetics work. Um, my concern is just when it comes to things like social activity and behavior, that's where my concern comes from. Like, I think they are a great, you know, model for, especially when, you know, you're looking at um, gene structure or anything like that. I think they're great, but I just, it's something that I've struggled with, like, like since starting my PhD and I, you know, like read all this research and like I said to you, I, I'm really interested recently in like the link between epigenetics and behavior and social activity. And like, I, I always am quite surprised at the amount of studies that use mouse models. Why do you think people continue to use them then? Like there must be some benefits. If you say, for example, there's, you know, like 30 to 50 papers that don't have good translation, why do you think people continue to, to use, use them as a model? Um, I think partially because they still give us the ability to ask, answer questions that we otherwise can't. Um, yeah. You know, you get a level of, you know, the ability to manipulate, to do manipulations mm -hmm. uh, is still important. You know, there's a hope that maybe one of these one day will translate, you know, and yeah. another yeah. part of the problem also maybe that not only that social behaviors are more complex, but also we are, you know, trying to translate studies in a mouse with a specific gene mutation mm -hmm. to a population of mm -hmm. individuals with autism spectrum disorder that actually represents a spectrum of potentially thousands of gene mutations, all affecting different processes. You know, if think about like if, if the symptom is pain, right? Mm -hmm. And you take 
painkiller, like it's it's probably gonna help, right? Because painkillers just work broadly. But if you took a specific, you know, if you have pain in your ear and you take a painkiller that's specifically shown to help pain in the toes or in the feet or something like that, would you expect it to work? Especially if the mechanism, the biological mechanism, how pain worked in the ear was different than in the foot. And that's sort of what we're dealing with is like, there's just seems to be all the hundreds of pathways in cells that regulate um, social behavior and targeting any single one of them may not be sufficient. But, but going to your, your thing about epigenetics and the study of mice, um, I, you know, I think about this all the time and with the inherited, the inherited thing, like you're born with a genetic blueprint, right? And then the expression changes over time by experience. But you also have to think like what determines that preset level of, of expression? You know, if, if you had no gene expression, you wouldn't exist. So there has to be something that determines like when and how much certain genes are expressed. And the idea with this inherited um, like trauma epigenetic thing is that like if someone experiences extreme trauma, like, for, like a Holocaust survivor, it may alter the baseline expression patterns of genes in the offspring of that person, which may lead to changes in, you know, like psychiatric well-being, things like that. And uh, like the, the behavior being studied is relevant in this case, because what I always think about, like when a deer is born in the wild <laughs> or, or a squirrel and it's living in the woods, how does that animal know which berries to avoid? you know, which, which berries are poisonous, which plants may be toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and there must be some inherited knowledge there, yes. right? Yeah, I think, and I, I think that's pretty well shown. Well, a lot of the evidence uh, for, specifically for epigenetic inheritance of trauma is number one, based on mice. And we've just discussed how, I don't think that's, personally, my opinion is, I don't think that's a valid, I don't think you can translate that into humans. Second of all, a lot of it is based on DNA methylation. So you've just mentioned there about uh, having sort of a baseline uh, for, so basically what you're just saying there is <clears throat> when you're, so obviously when, you know, like uh, an egg is fertilized, you have the sperm and the egg, right? They both have their own genetic information. They also both have their own epigenetic information. So when those two, when the sperm fertilizes the egg, you have like sort of, you can call it genetic reprogramming. So you have basically where the two genomes come together and combine to form one. The same thing basically happens with uh, epigenetic information as well. So in mammals, we have something called epigenetic reprogramming, which is where basically when the uh, sperm fertilizes the egg, you have uh, essentially like most of the epigenetic information wiped and um, a lot of the studies focus on a particular type of epigenetic modification, which is called DNA methylation. So you've got DNA methylation, microRNAs, and histone modifications. And a lot of the evidence for uh, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance of trauma is based on DNA methylation. But during epigenetic reprogramming in mammals, most of DNA methylation is actually wiped. So around only like 20% of DNA methylation remains. And these are basically what some people thought could be hotspots for transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, right? So if you have <clears throat> DNA methylation remaining at a particular site, which uh, you know is linked to uh, trauma, uh, you might expect that these sites are uh, located at these sites which avoid this 
wiping of DNA methylation during epigenetic reprogramming, but that's not actually what you see. So basically what we know is that all of the sites that have been linked to uh, epigenetic inheritance of trauma and actually at sites where this DNA methylation is wiped during reprogramming. Hi there, this is um, Liv editing. <laughs> I just wanna say that I should have mentioned at this part that I'm talking just about research that I have read. I totally appreciate that there's probably research out there that I haven't read. So again, as I mentioned in the intro, if you didn't listen in the intro, I'm aware that I might be chatting rubbish in this episode. I think I got a bit carried away, <laughs> but I was enjoying the conversation. So yeah, if I've missed like any research that um, completely goes against what I'm saying, I'm sorry. So yeah, just bear in mind that there may be research out there that um, I haven't read and therefore I'm not taking into account in this conversation. Yeah, and I'm not really familiar with that literature, so I actually want to ask, is the hypothesis there that seems to be refuted that um, the DNA methylation sites and their, like, spacing and location and all that, like, if you look like, you know, you think of, like, a transcriptome, I'm talking about, like, a methylome, right, of, like, all, like, where they are. If that pattern carries some, you know, uh, hered heritable expression information, or yeah. if the location of specific methylation sites and how that affects the inherited, inherited expression of those genes specifically um, carries that information. Like, which which is it? My understanding, it depends on what you're looking at, but it can be both. But I mean, more often than not, it's if it's whether you have uh, methylation at a specific gene, for example. There was one study I, I can remember, which is where basically they found methylation at particular genes, which were, um, I don't know, let's say they were to do with like food intake or obesity or something. Um, basically, they found that the offspring of these people had um, problems with obesity because they also had elevated or decreased methylation at these particular sites. So in fact, it was inheritance of the, um, I, no one can see me, but I'm doing quotation marks when I say inheritance of the methylation at these particular genes. So it is, it can be like methylation at one particular site in the genome, which can literally be one base pair, which influences the expression of the gene. Um, because where the methylation is, very much determines its relationship with gene expression. So gene methylation does, it, a very general term, you can say that it leads to gene silencing, but we know that that's not always the case. So gene, uh, gene methylation could actually lead to gene expression. So it is quite a complicated relationship and it depends on where you find methylation uh, in the gene. So for example, if you find it in the promoter of the gene, more often than not, it is linked to gene silencing. But if you have, let's say, like lots of gene methylation across um, the body of the gene, that has been linked to active expression. So it depends massively on how, like where the methylation is on how it's going to affect gene expression. But you can have literally one, like one site that has methylation, which would then affect uh, like a phenotype. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, question? yeah, definitely. It makes sense. Um... And that's actually really similar, like the whole histomethylation thing. It's so complicated. And acetylation. It's so complicated. You can have a single methylation site um, that is repressive transcriptionally. But then if another methylation becomes like yeah. added on to that methylation, then all of a sudden it's, you know, transcriptionally uh, 
you know, promoting whatever. So um, it's, yeah, it's really complicated. Okay. So the, so the idea there is that instead of, so like you might think the, the way I think of my stuff is like a specific gene mutation affects the way the brain's functioning. But the, re, the reason that's affecting the way the brain's functioning is because it's altering the, the, the transcription, the functional, the functionality of the associated protein. Whereas in this case, you have inherited alterations in specific gene expression, which can lead to, you know, downstream, like if it's a, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that makes, that makes sense to me. I guess I understand the hypothesis a little bit more. Yeah. So, but, I mean, that's the idea, but I think when you're looking at, you know, for example, like all of these studies are, I mean, obviously they're looking at intergenerational transgenerational inheritance. So you're looking at people who are related, right? So it's hard then to tease apart genetics and epigenetics. So is it that it's actually an inherited epigenetic mark or is it that it's an inherited genetic mark which influences DNA methylation? Because you know that genetics can influence epigenetics just as much as epigenetics can influence genetics, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's hard then to know, is this actually epigenetics which is inherited or is it just, let's say, a mutation in a gene which has downstream effects which affect the methylation of a neighboring gene. So in fact, what you're seeing is not epigenetic inheritance at this gene, but it's genetic inheritance at this gene which influences epigenetics of that gene. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And I think that, you know, in, in humans, the best you can do, and I don't even know how this works, probably the best thing you can do is look at, you really can't, okay, all you can look at in humans is you can't look at transcriptional expression unless the person's dead, right? If you're taking in the brain, I'm thinking in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> if you're taking, if you're taking brain tissue out of someone and you're, and you're looking at, you know, you're doing RNA sequencing or something like that to look at expression levels. Um, yeah. That person has to be dead. So that that's why, uh, or at least donated a portion of their brain while they're alive. Unlikely, but um, in mice, it gives you the ability to sort of like mimic the conditions, you know, stressors or things like that. And, and characterize. You know I've actually never thought about that. I've actually never thought about that. Yeah. That's, and I guess that's probably the rationale of people doing this type of work is, you know, you're doing this um, type of work in, in mice. Yeah. Yeah. Like stress them out. Right. You can expose the mice to restraint stress, you know, where they're like, they're limited in their movement or you know, there's all sorts of different types of stressors. Actually, unfortunately it's, mm -hmm. it's terrible. Um, but you know, that's yeah. how you can study things like PTSD and, and whatnot. That's a whole nother, like, that's a whole nother story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I have, uh, uh, you know what? I'm not going to talk about this too much. I have this idea for this project. I basically want to look into like that, the idea I was talking about of how, uh, like a certain animal can already be born with this knowledge of like a certain food is like whatever, uh, poisonous. I have this idea of studying how this happens and I'm just so curious about it. And, uh, Hopefully no scientists out there will hear this and be like, wait, I could think of an experiment against that. <laughs> but maybe one day, maybe if I, one day when I, if and when I start my own lab, I want to look at that. Um, That's super cool. Because I think that, you know, it's, like I said, it's all about the- Are you willing to share the, are you willing to share the idea or not? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's not, you know- You don't have to if you don't want to. All right, I'll share it with the, the, the disclaimer the clause, please nobody scoop me and try this. Um, <laughs> or if you are going to do it, contact me and involve me. Yeah, I'm involved. Um, the, the, uh, the experiment would basically be if you give a, an animal a certain <clears throat> food that's not poisonous, 
but you pair it with like something that is toxic, not point, not like to the point where they die, but to the point where maybe they throw up something. So you give the mouse like peppermint and something to make them throw up. And then you expose that mouse to another mouse. Can, will the other mouse then avoid peppermint? Because they saw another mouse that smelled like peppermint throwing up and being sick. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a, and I would think evolutionarily, the answer must be yes, because any smart organism must be able to learn through observation that a certain food is, is bad. And there have been studies that have shown the opposite of this, where actually you can, you can do a social transfer. This is what I'm calling with social transfer, where one mouse learns from the other of food preference, where um, if you pair like a, a certain flavor of food with a certain like really pleasant stimulus, then the other mouse that's watching will actually take on the preference as well. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it makes sense to me that they must be equally likely, probably more likely to transfer the food aversion. And my question would be, if you take that mouse that has been that has uh, been transferred the food aversion, has learned by watching, and you have it breed with another mouse, do the offspring avoid that food? And right. I'd be yeah. very curious to see because I would think evolutionarily this would be a mechanism by which food, you know, the, the knowledge of noxious, dangerous stimuli is passed on um, through experience-based learning and then some sort of potential hereditary transmission of information. Which would have and to be epigenetic if it's learned, right? I, I, who the heck knows? I don't even know <laughs> how that would happen. Like, if it's, it's learned, it must, be, it must be epigenetic. If it was, you know... Yeah, it would have to if it was then passed on it would be that would then be intergenerational epigenetic inheritance which would be very very cool i mean i don't know how you would figure out where you could definitely somehow try and figure out well you could what you could do is look at get the epigenetic information from let's say you do like a uh get information on the micro rnas for all three of the I mean, hopefully you would want to do it on a bigger scale. Maybe you'd try it on just breed to start with. You get epigenetic information for all three of them, the mice. And then, uh, no, you'd want to do it before and after, right? So you'd want to do it before and after they learn the behavior, if they learn the behavior. And then you'd easily be able to see where the differences are. So if you did have intergenerational epigenetic inheritance, because that is what it would be if it's a learned behavior, you'd then be able to see where the differences are. So that would be really, really cool. It's a good experimental design, right? It gets right to that point. And it's an, it's a, it's a relevant behavior. It is the, you know, we're not studying trauma-based psychiatric risk or something like that. We're studying evolutionarily Mm -hmm. advantageous learned and heritable, um, you know, transmission. And that is where you'd want to study it if you're looking at mice, because, you know, it actually matters in mice, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And also, I mean, you, well, could, the question to me then would be, so let's say this, let's say this already happened. I published this and I showed, look, you know, yeah. this food aversion can be inherited. The next question is, and that's obviously beneficial, evolutionarily beneficial, because then the mice that are born now know to avoid this food, it could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Is the potential inherited, um, like information that we're talking about, like Holocaust survivors passing along some sort of information, is that advantageous similarly, or is that 
mm-hmm. deleterious. You know, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Is that a variation of this type of evolutionary mechanism that's helpful for survival? Or is that a, you know, an artifact of the human brain being so socially, emotionally, psychologically evolved that this type of information is similarly carried over between generations where, mm-hmm. you know, biologically this, this type of system was in, intended to only transfer survival information. That's, mm-hmm. that's a question that I think is, is interesting, assuming that all of this is true. Yeah, that is an interesting question. And then it would be interesting. I mean, so I don't know what, if this is true, but so I've mentioned intergenerational, transgenerational a couple of times. So I should maybe at this point clarify that intergenerational, as I hope I'm getting this correct, intergenerational is, let's say, from um, mum to daughter or mum to son. I think maybe grandma to daughter. <laughs> I hope I'm getting this right. And then transgenerational is when you see it over several generations. So then if it, I don't know what, if this is, I don't know if people know the answer to this or not, but I then wonder is transgenerational something that is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is is transgenerational something that's saved for only things that are advantageous, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Mm, Evolutionary advantageous mm-hmm. it then be something that yes it is transgenerationally inherited in other words it's a conserved form of inheritance and if it's not advantageous is it then just intergenerational rather than transgenerational because there's no point in passing it on anymore because it's not advantageous I don't know if people know the answer to that and if that's something that's been explored but it's interesting but yeah and what's what I just was thinking about is perhaps, you know, I'm naive to this field, I'm not an expert in this, but perhaps transgenerational is actually the same exact thing as intergenerational. Because if, if I am an animal and I learn that a blackberry in the woods will kill me or will hurt me or make me throw up, I pass that information along to my offspring. Then 40, 50 years later, maybe that for that information to then be passed to their offspring, there needs to be some sort of confirmation of that knowledge in that, in that organism, because what if the animal moves to a different area, you know, it's some sort of geographical change happens and they move across to an Island or different, they cross a land bridge or something. And then that new area, blackberries are really good. And, and brown berries are really dangerous. And if that information is automatically transmitted through multiple generations, it could actually be a bad thing where now the, the animals are avoiding blackberries where actually that is the most important berry to eat. You know, and so maybe there has to be like within each generation, some either some rejection or some confirmation of that information in order for it to be passed along. So transgenerational could be the same thing as intergenerational, but just being passed along multiple times instead of a single like sweeping. Which is what transgenerational inheritance is. It is the same thing as intergenerational, but it just is for longer generations. So that's what I was so yeah, you've kind of basically just said exactly what I said, but I think in a lot better words. So yes, okay, yeah, I didn't understand it. Is tra- yeah, I was trying to say like, is transgenerational only a thing once you have that confirmation at the intergenerational step? And I don't know if anyone has explored that and knows like kind of the link between evolution and intergenerational versus transgenerational. Probably not because I think it's quite a new field. I don't know. Maybe we should look and see if. Uh, 
so yeah, much love. I think it's a really interesting topic. And, I, you know, this is the first I've heard of transgenerational versus intergenerational. So apologies for reiterating what you said. I was just processing uh, that I out loud. Said, yeah, I think you said it a lot, a lot better than I did anyway. So <laughs> I think you made it make sense. But yeah, I, that would be a really, really cool study because I, I that would be helpful to if no one has explored the link between evolution and intergenerational versus transgenerational, that would potentially be quite helpful to <laughs> the sun in your so, eye <laughs> for, for everybody that doesn't understand what's happening i'm sitting on my patio and the sun is just blazing <laughs> on me and i just moved a plant in front of me to block some of the sun <laughs> i wish um, i had that problem <laughs> yeah it's it's very sunny here <laughs> um but yeah no super interesting interesting question um where did yeah, I kind of know we'd end up on epigenetic inheritance? Why didn't I know that was going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad we got into that because I've never thought about this before. And I think it's interesting. I, I, I feel that it's very, very interesting. And uh, these are important questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I want scientists to be listening to this and to start working on it or if I want to work on this because I'm very interested in it. I can take it out if you want. Should I take it out? No, 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 no. Definitely <laughs> keep it in. Keep it in. Um, uh, if, yeah, if you, if you end up doing it, then... Uh, don't take either of the ideas that we've just said because now I'm really interested in inter versus transgenerational and how it <laughs> yeah so take either of our ideas <laughs> well that could easily be studied actually because imagine you know oh this is so cool imagine um doing that study that I described where you test in the offspring mm -hmm. but then if you gave them a reverse rejecting yeah. versus yeah 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 like you gave them a appetitive stimulus paired with peppermint right mm -hmm. so now all of a sudden peppermint's really good Mm -hmm. and that tests their offspring versus another offspring you know versus their brother or sister littermate that was given another confirming experience where they saw peppermints really bad and then if it can change within the same litter of animals with different experiences oh this is so cool mm -hmm. i wanted i wanted this experiment i'm gonna just go into the lab right now and just do it <laughs> it would be pretty easy it would yeah it would be easy to see the the hard bit would be to ask the epigenetic question of Oh yeah. Does is this an epigenetic mechanism? And if it is, how exactly? Because this is the big question in the whole field of epigenetic inheritance, especially when it comes to transgenerational, because intergenerational is a little bit easier to prove. Again, I'm doing quotation marks because of what I mentioned earlier about genetic shared genetic effects, and also because of direct effects of the fact that, you know, like the cells of you are actually in uh the whim of your mum you know when she's potentially exposed to these traumatic again I'm doing quotation traumatic uh triggers or whatever so I think intergenerational is a little bit easier to prove or not prove either way it's easy to say yeah we have intergenerational inheritance but transgenerational is a lot lot harder to 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 prove and yeah. there's, there's not a known mechanism really I mean uh, microRNAs are sort of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for again? Uh, rising theme in the literature is the word I'm looking mm -hmm. for. MicroRNAs are kind of uh, the ones that I think hold good evidence at the moment. Um, but I, as much as I don't think DNA methylation is involved personally, I do still think it's an interesting, it would be an interesting thing to look at. Um, but yes, the hard thing would be to prove, okay, this is epigenetics and this is the mechanism by which it occurs, but it's doable, definitely doable. Yeah, um, 
I, I have an idea. I mean, I don't know if I want to share it now because then I can, someone can full on do the study. <laughs> uh, I can cut, whatever. I can cut this bit out if you want. No, I, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's simple. Anyone can probably think of it. Um, it would just be, just do RNA sequencing in, in each generation, you know, each successive generation and look for common, you know, if you have a generation where it's lost versus a generation where it's retained the information, look, just compare, you know, um, so RNA of so you're looking at gene gene expression changes. Yeah, yeah. In in brain tissue, I mean, geez, I don't know. How do you this is where the issue of genetic effects come into it? Well, the benefit of studying mice is in this case, they're all you know, genetically equal, essentially, right? So they're all the same strain, same background. If you sequence the if you do RNA sequencing in, you know two different groups of lab mice, they should be essentially identical. Um, so, you know, there'll be differences, but they're, they're supposed to be- what you could do, I mean, the ideal world is you'd have enough funding to do, okay, let's do RNA-seq. Let's also run some DNA microarrays, uh, DNA methylation microarrays. So let's capture the, the methylome. Let's mm -hmm. also do, um, let's run some chip seek, let's get some histone modifications and let's look at microRNAs. That would be the ideal thing. But I think the first thing you'd probably want to do is check out their microRNAs. Um, yeah. <clears throat> a huge question also is like what brain area, you know, like do you just, if you just take the whole brain, then yeah, yeah. you are just welcoming confounds, you know, so, expression is going to differ by brain area. So that'd be tough. Maybe fear. Um, where, where would you pick if you had to pick somewhere? So, is there a particular area of the brain where you'd expect to see changes in response to um, something like, you know, this this particular uh, what's the one I'm looking for? This particular thing that we're talking about. So, where is there a particular region in the brain where they would learn this behavior? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. For this particular behavior, you know, food aversion, I would probably say I would narrow it down to the amygdala, uh, fear, emotional, you know, very much fear involved area. Um, you would think that probably some, you know, an alteration in amygdala activity in response to like seeing or smelling or whatever the berries, whatever the food was, would be involved. Um, sort of just like a inhibition of motivation. So maybe the other areas like nucleus accumbens um, or like the the ventral tegmental area. So nucleus commons very much like motivated behavior. Uh, ventral tegmental area is like a dopamine center. So again, like motivation, and then perhaps like olfactory bulb for just like the, the I mean, I would, I would think olfactory bulbs probably not as much involved because like you would think it wouldn't change that their perception of smelling the berry. But I would imagine that if I had to guess in this phenomenon, that's probably the relevant circuitry, something, some connection between olfactory bulb processing the the, you know, the information of what it smells like or whatever, then sending information to uh, the amygdala, processing a fear aversive response, which projects, you know, may involve a loss of dopaminergic signaling to the nucleus accumbens to indicate, you know, avoid, do not pursue this uh, berry. And this is just sort of, you know, to anybody listening to this and saying, Jesus, you know, th this is just kind of how the brain works and how scientists think so never you know a lot of, i get a lot of questions on like tiktok and stuff where people are like where is um like fear in the brain where is hope in the brain where is love in the brain sorry i basically and, just asked you that didn't i 
well yeah kind of but <laughs> in a more much more sophisticated way well, I, fear is a fear is a relatively uh you know, that's a pretty good one to ask. And actually, there is an answer to it, amygdala mostly. But other things like, you know, where is this in the brain, whatever, it, it, it's so complex. And there's no like, there is like hubs for certain behaviors, but generally the brain is a uh, an organ of circuitry, you know? And so, like I just said, there's like five, I just named five different brain areas that might be involved. And there's probably many more. And, you know, even within those brain areas, there are different subsets of brain areas which control different functions and have different cellular populations. Um, so the brain's really complex. So, uh, you know, I always try and emphasize that, like, if you think you understand it, you don't. Yeah. Because I, I certainly don't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. And then, yeah, would you even capture epigenetic changes there? Because if you think about it, if they're being passed on to, if they're being passed on to offspring, you might want to be checking in the sperm. Yeah, so that's beyond my scope personally. I, if I were to do this study, probably I would start by even before, you know, just given that my training and all this, before doing the uh, sequencing and all that uh, uh, big data, whatever. I, it um, <laughs> I, I would probably go to like looking at like activity of certain brain areas yeah. in response, like when exposed to the stimulus, you know, mm -hmm. when exposed to whatever the, the food cue is. And that would probably, uh, be a paper in itself and then someone else yeah, can look at the epigenetics okay well you do it and then i'll yeah you do it and then i'll uh somehow do all the epigenetics for you <laughs> all right it's my goal in my postdoc oh no it's my goal i've thought about you know trying to do it in my postdoc just sort of like doing it and, and like running a few experiments and then just like going to my boss and being like hey so i did this thing and like you totally didn't approve it but like, it's so cool <laughs> look at it um but that'd be sweet yeah i mean because I, I think that'd be really cool. I, I want I really want to do epigenetic inheritance for my postdoc. Um, so yeah, I just need to uh, find one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's not many labs studying that, but yeah, I yeah, I've spoke to a couple of people who are doing um, epigenetic inheritance. So I'm hoping I'll be able to. But yes, if you do it and it's a thing, um, I'm I'm making you hold. I'm holding you to this that you have to get me involved. Right. <laughs> yeah i i mean it's just it's so off base from my like current line of research and my historical research but, oh, same um but it's such a cool idea and it's the kind yeah. of thing where if you you know if you published one study on it that's the type of concept that you can build an entire research program on you know you could start a full lab yeah. studying you know, yeah. the mechanisms of that mm -hmm. um, so yeah definitely it's very interesting yeah um Right. Well, now we've given everyone ideas to scoop us and take our ideas. Um, yep. Well, we're hoping they <laughs> don't. Um, I will kind of let you go. I really enjoyed the conversation, actually. I knew we were going to end up on epigenetic inheritance. Like, I, I literally knew it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you start bringing it up in the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't know if I have too much to talk about on this. And then it turned out <laughs> that I had plenty to say. But, uh, you I mean, know, and I should clarify I all this stuff. It wasn't um... opinion. <laughs> yeah I hope it wasn't chatting just absolute rubbish to be honest because <laughs> either of us are experts in I mean I, I thoroughly enjoy reading about it but I still by no means have no idea what I'm like I still don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah I mean that that's the that's the sign of you know a smart person is knowing that you don't know enough to pretend you know too much yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day. Um, 
so I always kind of wrap up asking people where uh, people can get in contact with them if they want to. Um, do you want to kind of reel off your socials? I know you kind of you're on pretty much what like every platform possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of my 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 um, main platform where I have the most followers is TikTok uh and instagram those are like the main two those are pretty much the only two i really use i also have twitter but if you yeah. want to check out my videos um my handle on both instagram and tiktok is at dr brain b-r-e-i-n because so my last name is ryan r-e-i-n first name is ben and on my scientific papers my name automatically gets abbreviated to b ryan which looks like brain it's brain with an e instead of an a so I've decided to you know, be a catchy name for social media. So yeah, you could you could check me out on, on either of those. Um, if you just Google I'll Ben Ryan. The, I'll put them in the episode description. Okay, so. cool. And yeah, and you can also check out my website, which is Ryan, R-E-I-N, research.com. And I have like uh, some resources for students and it's more about my research and all my publications on there for download if you want the PDF versions, no paywall. Um, and uh, yeah, you can also link my, you can also check out my sitecom from there. It's all linked. So, but thank you for your interest. And if you want to contact me, probably best to do so via email um, yeah. that's on my website. And please do that. If you're going to scoop me, let me know. Just give me a warning. <laughs> so <prepare> myself. <laughs> no, no one will. No one will. <laughs> um, I hope not. Does anyone ever, just last question, does anyone ever call you Brian? Uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah, I get, I get it all. I get <laughs> Dr. Dr. Brian. Brian, um, <laughs> you know, the other day I get it. I, people don't understand how to pronounce my last name. It's it's Ryan. It rhymes with wine. I, I literally asked you at the start, like, how do you pronounce it, Rain or Ryan? But I literally asked yeah. everyone to be honest, who's a guest, because I never want to. If I get their name wrong, that would be so so bad. So yeah, you, well, usually what I get is is Rain. People think it's Rain, and I kind of do that to myself too, because I Rain, Doctor Brain. So people think, oh, Ben Rain, but. Yeah. Um, I recently, Dr. Huberman, who's a big neuroscience guy, he's a huge podcast. Uh, I was in his Instagram live and he was like, oh, like, uh, Dr. Brain. Okay. Hey everyone, like go check out Ben Reen. <laughs> he said, oh, Reen. Okay. I've never heard anyone say Reen before. And I thought it was really <laughs> interesting. Uh, but yeah, so I get it all. But a lot of people call me Brian. Um, yeah, people, a lot of people think my last name is actually B-R-E-I-N. I don't really care. Whatever. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't bother me at all no I love it um cool so I'll pop all of those in the episode description um so yeah thank you so much for talking to me I really appreciate it especially so early <laughs> oh yeah nope it's a great conversation I'm glad we did this and thanks for yeah. having me on no worries no worries Thank you for joining me for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both of those is at the Genomics Lab. And be sure to check out all of our other fun episodes. We have tons of topics ranging from DNA nanotechnology to epigenetics, spatial transcriptomics. I've covered a lot of it on this show. So if you want to hear about it, I've probably done so. If not, if there's a topic that I haven't covered that you want to hear about, send me a message on Twitter or Instagram and I will get it covered for you. So thanks again for listening. And yeah, don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on wherever you're listening to us from.